We can leave the Hie Shrine via the steep men's slope or the gentler women's one. Like most religions, Shinto has a particular take on the capacities and responsibilities of each gender. Either way, we'll soon be overshadowed by the 44 floors of the Sanno Park Tower, which was completed in time for the new millennium. That office block towers over the Prime Minister's residence too, but the windows on that side of the building are locked. Japan has a long record of political assassinations, which continues down to the present day. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're trying to understand imperial Tokyo, the way the city has served to build a nation and an empire in modern times, and the way both city and country have made use of the emperor. To do this, we're walking through and around the palace at the centre of the city. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this second episode, we confront, in uncompromising, unprepossessing buildings, the two main branches of the Japanese state. The elected but infrequently accountable politicians up on the hill in Nagatacho, and the educated but overly disciplined bureaucrats down on the flatlands of Kasumigaseki. But we'll start elsewhere, on Benkebashi, next to the flesh pots of Akasaka, just next to exit 5 of Akasaka Mitsuke subway station. We'll meet you there. So here we are on Benkei Bashi, Benkei's bridge. We've got a bit of moat, we've got a bit of wall. It's tipping down, you can hear the rain. On the other side of the moat, we've got two tall towers. They've each got a luxury hotel. Around us, we've got freeways overhead, more straight in front, a busy road. We're on the edge of Akasaka. It means red slope. The hill over to our right might have been made of red soil. It led to Mount Akane, a madder grown to produce red dye for silk. On the other side of the moat, there was a mansion of one of three Tokugawa families who provided two of the shoguns. Now that's where these huge commercial complexes are. And on the other side, Akasaka Mitsuke, merchants and tradesmen down in the lowlands serving the large number of lords. But then, at the end of the 19th century, they leave and this area gets a bit deserted. It's hard to think about it now. It was okay during the day. Here's Teyamakate, reminiscing in 1917 about the late 19th century. He notes that families would come and pick parsley and shepherd's purse. The flowers were splendid. The green of the willows of Benkebashi, he says, especially in the haze of rain on a spring morning, were just indescribable. Maybe we're here on the right day. 
but it wasn't so great at night. There's a ghost story. It was translated by Lafcadio Hearn, an Irish-Greek man born in the middle of the 19th century, spent some time in the US, came here in 1890 and he stayed. Did a lot of translations of Japanese literature and culture to the West. The story goes that a man traveling in this low little bit of valley met a young woman who was crying and forlorn. He tries to console her and to help, but she turns towards him and he realizes she's a faceless ghost. So he goes on, he meets a vendor of sober noodles who strokes his face. She too turns out to be a faceless ghost. And the man realizes that this is a place where Nopperabo or Mujina hang out. That's badgers and raccoon dogs. They're expert at shape-shifting and, of course, deceit. Fast forward a few years, though. In the early 20th century, it becomes known for its nightlife, for restaurants, also for sex workers. And so it becomes a draw for the politicians, the businessmen and the journalists who are beginning to work close by. But it's still quite pastoral at that point. It's in the post-war period, in the 50s and then the 60s, up to the 80s, that this place really takes off with upscale entertainment. It rivals Ginza, which we'll see in our next episode of this walk. This area is close to luxury hotels, close to the headquarters of the main private broadcaster of the time, and to record companies, so you've got enough glamour to keep it going. And that's what it remains today. A place for entertainment and business, and now increasingly high-end residential, even though it's cut through by these noisy, busy freeways which were put in in the 1960s. So we're now going to cross this crazy intersection. Under the freeways, we can see the red and the orange of a Wendy's kitchen. That's where we're going to head. So we've made it across that crazy intersection, the rain's still tipping down. We're turning right by Wendy's, just up alongside the freeway, and then we're going to take the second left. So we've turned left down this street, just past Starbucks, just before Mizuho Bank. We're now on a street called Hitotsugi Street. There's a village here, in fact, from the 16th century. There's the mansion of the Edo town magistrate, and it has a shrine to the fox deity, who we'll meet again in a minute. Pre-war, this area is largely occupied by the military. Now, clearly, it's very different with shops, with retail, with bars, with restaurants. We're going to continue quite a long way down this street until on the right we suddenly see more huge towers. We'll meet you there. So we've nearly made it to the end of a wet, rainy Hitotsugi street. And on our right, we can see some more huge towers. This is part of the real estate portfolio of what was originally one of Japan's big private broadcasters, TBS, Tokyo Broadcasting System. 
They start up in 1953, quite close to here, and they provide a lot of the glamour for the restaurants and the clubs nearby. But what we're seeing now starts in the middle of the 90s. The broadcaster buys a huge site here and they begin to build, moving into real estate. They put up Akasaka Circus on the far side of this and what we're seeing here is Biz Tower put up in 2008. On the far side of both is the new headquarters for the TV studios. We're leaving those buildings behind us now. We're turning left in front of Family Mart, a very useful convenience store. And we're going to head down to the main road. We can see the gate of a shrine on its far side. When we hear shrine these days, we think Shinto. But the religious landscape used to be much less clear-cut. The things we know now as Shinto and Buddhism were much more entangled. Here's artist Toru Matsushita on the way Buddhism was violently suppressed at the beginning of the Meiji period in the 19th century. In the beginning of the uh, Meiji era, they wanted to make the Tenno to be a king. So Tenno has a religion named Shinto. So they pushed Shinto as in the politics. Mm. So they banned Buddhism <laughs> and they burned down the temple and also throw away all the statues and destroy the uh, Buddhism graves. Haibutsu Kishaku is when there is an anti-Buddhist movement, so Buddhas are destroyed around the city. Iconoclasm, but specific. it's a very specific moment. It's interesting because uh, Shinto doesn't have certain shape of the uh, graves. Now, if you come to Japan, most of the graves you can find is uh, Buddhism. It must be a lot of uh, Buddhism temples in Tokyo, and also graves are built in the temples, right? But they kind of kick out the temples and put shrine instead of it. So that's why monuments related with Buddhism idea is swiped from the Tokyo. Temples and shrines may look old, but they've changed considerably over the years and they continue to adapt to the present. So we're heading down this short street. Now we're passing a couple of others. First, we've got Tamachi. This was part of the marshland next to the reservoir in the old days. Then it was where the dyers hung out. They had a water source. It was easy to dye clothes. Come the end of the 19th century, this is a geisha district. Post-war, it's infested with gangsters. It was called Yakandori, not somewhere you want to be at night. But in 2019, not so long ago, the government begins to prohibit gangs in this area. Now it's being rebranded as Esplanade Akasaka. And now we're coming out on the main road. Before we cross over, down to our right, we've got Tameike. This was where the reservoir was. It was served by a spring and it was surrounded by polonia trees. That's a fast-growing, light hardwood, very useful for cabinetry. It also provides the leaves which form the seal of the prime minister. The reservoir, it's filled in at the end of the 19th century. Foreign car dealers start to arrive in the middle of the 20th century. It's known as Automobile Town. And then what we can see now, these huge office towers, which begin to sprout in the 1970s. We're going straight over this busy road, though, to Hiei Shrine. We can see the gate in front of us. We're going to see how more recent development, like these towers, overlays what was originally a religious landscape. 
It's a pretty approach to the shrine. We're going to pass under lots and lots of torii gates. We're going to see that again and again through these episodes and these walks. We'll meet you at the top. Here's historian Hidenobu Jinai explaining the relationship between secular and sacred space in the landscape of Tokyo and how different this is from the place of religion in the West. Western cities, typically in Italy, important church faces directly to big important plaza, piazza, square. Very artificial situation. They don't have greenery, trees, so all of elements are artificial, stone or brick, and create a religious space and public space in front of the church. So very monumental. Natural elements didn't exist here. But for Japanese to be religious, spiritual, we need natural elements. Mountain itself can be religious object. Urban space belongs to daily life space, commercial and production. To be more spiritual, more religious, we need to go inside to another kind of space. It belongs to the natural world. So, bosk, uh, forest, wood, mountain, hill, covered by greenery, is ideal. In the city, it became very difficult. But they tried to reproduce this kind of model, spatial model. For example, there is one very nice shrine along the, this moat, so we should climb up strong staircase. Masculine staircase and female staircase, we, we have two. Inside there is a sacred area uh, for shrine. So urbanity belongs to this area, lower parts. Uh, spirituality, religious elements are inside, hidden. They created the sacred area with forest in the hillside. So automatically uh, this area is artificial and inside uh, more natural, spiritual, uh, belong to shrine and also temple, tombs, uh, cemetery. So horizontally we wanted to distinguish different elements, factors, but in European cities integrated in the same level. So especially in the center, public space as a plaza and surrounded by uh, municipalities, palace and churches and uh, houses. We'll see the separation between sacred and secular in our other walks in Tokyo, but we'll also find places where they're cheek by jowl. So we've made it to the top through this series of extraordinary red torii gates, quite a lot of them. And they tell us that the shrine they're leading to is an Inari shrine. Originally, the Inari deity is associated with rice. These days, we think they're a Shinto deity, Shinto being what we call the indigenous faith and practice of Japan. But then they become the protector of a Buddhist temple in Kyoto and associated with a Buddhist deity. Back then, there wasn't that much distinction between the two faiths. They're associated often with a white fox, 
they become a protector of land, then a business and more. They cover all the bases. Now there are nearly 3,000 Inari shrines in the whole of Japan, and all of them share these bright red vermilion tori. The main shrine in Kyoto has 1,000 leading to them. They also, most of them, have these white guardian foxes. We're peeking other another tori gate leading into the small shrine itself, and we can see a couple there. But this isn't the main shrine on top of this hillside. Most shrines have multiple shrines within them. The main shrine here was established back in the 14th or 15th century. It enshrines a deity who's associated with Mount Hie, which is down in Kyoto. It's in the northeast of the city, protecting a very dangerous direction for any ruler. Hie shrines don't have white foxes, they have monkeys as messengers. When the Tokugawa arrive in Edo, he moves this shrine into the castle to make sure he's covered, but his son moves it out back again, and it's rebuilt here on top of this hill in the middle of the 17th century to protect the other dangerous direction, the southwest, the devil's back door. This current structure, though, is more recent. It was bombed in the war. It was rebuilt in concrete in 1958. But it also has one of Tokyo's three great festivals, on the right of the Inari Shrine, we can see a huge concrete shed which houses the carts used in these festivals. In between it and the Inari Shrine, there's a car purification bay. You don't want a cart in a festival to have bad juju. In the first half of this episode, then, we've seen the conjunction, the juxtaposition of prayer on top of the hill and play down in the valleys, which we'll see again and again in the next episodes and walks. In the second half, we're going to move into what looks like a more secular world, dealing with the politicians and the bureaucrats who work close by. But the rain's suggesting this is a good place to take a break. Welcome back. In the first half of this episode, we've seen the flesh pots down in the valley on the other side of this hill. We've climbed the hill and we've seen this extraordinary shrine with these vermilion gates all around it. Now we're descending the other side of the hill and move into the world of politicians and bureaucrats clustered close to the imperial palace. We're leaving the main compound of Hie Shrine now and we could go straight ahead down the steep men's slope or, if we go to the side, we could go down a gentler one for women. Shrines are gendered spaces. There was a famous scandal here in 2008 associated with a rape. We're going to go to the right of the women's slope, down the side of the hill, which will lead us out between these two huge towers we can now see looming over us. We've made our way to the side of the shrine now, and conveniently enough, there's an escalator leading all the way down the hill. We're only going to take the first one, though. We're then going to turn left and follow the stairs leading between the two big buildings we can see ahead of us. So we've made our way down to ground level now, and we find ourselves sandwiched between two 
huge towers. On our left, we've got the Tokyo Capital Tower. It's 28 floors. It went up in 2010. It includes the flagship hotel for an offshoot of a private rail company. We'll hear much more about them when we get to Shibuya in another walk. But it's overshadowed by the Sano Park Tower on our left. Back in the 1930s, this too was a luxury hotel. It became the headquarters for the dissident military in 1936 when they tried to stage a coup d'etat. From 46 to 83, it was occupied by the US Armed Forces for housing and lodging for troops in Japan. And then it was vacant until it was replaced by this, 44 floors, 2,000. This is Mitsubishi Real Estate, using the air rights from the shrine we've just left, but it has locked windows on the side overlooking the prime ministerial residence. We're gonna head over the street now and into Nagatacho. Say Nagatacho in Japan and people know you're talking about politicians. This is quite close to the castle. It's about 20 meters above sea level. So there are many mansions of the lords. Some of them are called Nagata, hence the name. By the late 19th century, after the modern revolution, the military are concentrated here, including the Ministry of War. The general staff headquarters is here. There are also schools for the aristocrats. After the earthquake in 1923, the government district is reorganized. We're going to see much more about that in just a minute. And the elected politicians begin to move in. Just across the road here on our right, we can see the prime minister's official residence. It's been here since 1929. This one was put up in 2002. And on our left, the first of three office buildings for the Diet, Japan's national parliament. It was completed in 2010. The whole thing cost 170 billion yen. Now we're going to cross the road and head up the slope between these two buildings. We'll meet you at the top. So we've made our way to the top of that slope. We're a little out of breath. We've got some entrances to the subway ahead of us, Kokkai Gijido Mai. This is the station in front of the National Diet, which we're going to see in just a minute. But when we look down to our right now, we can see more of these towers sprouting. This district is known as Toranomon, the Tiger Gate. It's the lowland between two highlands. It's the southernmost gate to the castle. And it has a dam for the reservoir we've seen already in this episode. That's demolished in the 1870s to make way for development and the development has been going on ever since. We can see a strange building with a kind of saucer on top. That's by Sumitomo Real Estate. It's only 40 floors tall. It opens in 1995. We can also see a building with the Okara on the top of it. This was a venerable modernist hotel built in the 1960s, much loved by architectural aficionados but it had to make way. It was torn down in 2015 and its 42 floor replacement opens in 2019. But the behemoth we can see just over on the right is Toranamon Hills. There are four towers there, one for business, one for residential. They form a complete living, working and playing environment. They're by the Mori Building Company. We'll hear much more about them in another walk. They include the tallest tower in Tokyo, 52 floors, built in 2014. Its tenants include the Government Pension Investment Fund. It's the largest retirement fund in the world. It has 1.5 trillion US dollars in assets. 
We're continuing down the street in front of us, between the two entrances to the Kokkai Gijidomai station. We're going to cross over this road at the pedestrian crossing we can see a couple of hundred yards ahead. So we've made it across the road and thankfully the rain has finally stopped. Looking back across the road, we can now see the Diet building. Originally it was the Imperial Diet, now after the war it's the National Diet. The Diet though was formed at the end of the 19th century, in the late 1880s. There was a new constitution, there was a new parliament which needed somewhere to sit. There were multiple plans but there was no agreement as often with political debates. So the Diet had to occupy a series of temporary homes down the hill in Hibia. Those burned down twice. Finally, this is built between 1920 and 1936, interrupted but not stopped by the earthquake. It's in modernist Italian Renaissance style, but it has this strange tower on top. You might remember this if you've listened to our walks around London. It's the same tower on St George's in Bloomsbury. It's modelled on the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. And again, in the early 20th century, this is a popular feature. You can also find it on the Masonic Temple in Washington, D.C., on the L.A. City Hall. But designing the Dyer building in this style, a Western style, also prompted a reaction at the time, especially from the architects of the rejected, more Japanese proposals. They'd suggested that the diet should be topped instead with something resembling more classical Japanese roofs. Turning our backs on the diet, though, and facing again towards Toranomon, the Tiger's Gate, we can see straight ahead of us a rather nondescript office building. It's by no means the tallest now, but when it was built, it was revolutionary. Until 1963, there was a height limit of 31 metres on buildings in this area of Tokyo. But then that limit is lifted, and this is the first modern office skyscraper. 36 floors, 156 metres. For 20 years, it's actually used when you want to compare the internal volume of buildings. That's until the Tokyo Dome, a baseball stadium, is built in 1988. Its tenants, still today, include the Asian Development Bank. We're continuing down this road. We're curving to the right as it passes a strange white aircraft hangar of a building. Then we're going to cross the road, heading for the garden over on the left. We've made our way across the road and you can hear it's a busy one. Across, on the other side of the street, we've got the Ministry of Finance over on the right. We've got the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the left. They don't always get along very well. Next to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we've got an entrance to one of these freeways that circles the Imperial Palace. But we've also got a garden, and we're going to go into this seeking refuge both from the bureaucrats and the traffic. The entrance is just to the left.
So we've just paused briefly in this garden. We're looking over a pond back up at the Imperial Diet and the Prudential Tower beyond that. But the traffic still isn't that far away. Unlike other cities, perhaps, unlike London, certainly, where we've walked, where we've heard that parks are either huge and open or gated and closed off, in Japan they're a little more integrated in the urban environment. This park is one of two. On the other side of the street we've got a western garden, but originally, again, it's mansions for the lords who are forced to live here by the shogun. In the 1870s, an imperial villa gets built here, built in the Western style by a Western architect, and that is occupied by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the early 20th century, but it's bombed in 1945. We're continuing through the garden. We're gonna come out at the bottom of the slope leading up to the diet. And as we look up the hill, we can see the diet. We can see the much taller prudential tower looming behind and an avenue lined with ginkgo trees, amazing in the autumn when the colors are here. But we're turning right down into Kasumigaseki. Kasumigaseki literally means misty gate. It's kind of like foggy bottom in Washington, DC. There are early references to this. The name has poetical associations. But again, in the Tokugawa period, this is a place for the mansions of the daimyo, forced to live here by the shogunate. Around here, it's largely the hereditary enemies of the Tokugawa, unlike Marunouchi, which we'll see in the next episode. Come the end of the 19th century, though, the lords leave. The area is taken over by the new government. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs is the first to arrive. Then, in the 1880s, there are grand plans. They're made up for the government by a succession of German architects. Initially, this is going to be a huge district, a large ring of government ministries to the south, a ground for exhibitions and a museum, and a military parade ground. But the funds are short, so the whole thing is downsized. Implementation also takes some time. So it's only really after the earthquake in 23 that construction begins to rush. And then, in the post-war period, there's bureaucratic consolidation. We can see it across the road. Multiple buildings, each housing multiple government agencies, all of them growing upwards from the 1970s on. Right across the road, we have Central Government Building Number 3, originally built in 1966. Nowadays, it houses the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Transport and Tourism, formed in 2001 which has the largest number of government employees. Now we're crossing over the road and we're going to walk down next to the moat towards the bridge we can see in the distance leading back into the Imperial Palace. So we're standing on the bridge leading over the moat to an imposing gate back into the Imperial Palace. Up on the hill, we've got the National Diet. Over the road, with the front decorated with curious cross struts, we've got the National Police Agency. It's connected to the much taller building next door. That's the Metropolitan Police Department. That's built in 1977, refurbished for the 2020 Olympics, which were held in 2021. We've got more government buildings behind. The most striking, though, is the red brick building across the road from the police, the original Ministry of Justice. 
It's the sole survivor from this bout of planning in the 1880s. There's a problem with the German grand plan. The ground intended for all the ministries slopes down to what was once an inlet, so it's really unstable. It can't support heavy buildings. And so the south bit of it is turned into a park. We're going to start the next episode, the last episode in this walk there. But staying here just a moment, the Ministry of Justice, therefore, is relocated up the slope. It's designed by a pair of German architects in a neo-Baroque style. It's completed in 1895. It survives the earthquake in 1923. But it's destroyed by firebombing in 1945, during the Second World War. What we're seeing, therefore, is more recent, restored to its original appearance in 1994. Before the modern ministries, though, there were other things here. They're a reminder of the tension that belies the placid facade of Japanese politics, the harmony that Japan likes to present to the world. The gate behind us is the Sakuradamon. It's the southern gate to the inner citadel of the shogun's castle, which we saw in the previous episode. So this area is where the shogun places his ancestral enemies, specifically where the Ministry of Justice now is, the Uesugi clan. They're enormously rich. In the late 16th century, they control a domain of one million koku. It's a measure at the time. But it suggests that they're a hundred times bigger than what you need to really be of consequence. In 1600, they threaten to attack the Tokugawa, thereby precipitating the battle which ends 150 years of civil war. So, of course, they're under suspicion. They're uprooted, they're moved further north, their domain is reduced to a quarter of the size. It's still pretty substantial. And they're also, like all the lords, required to maintain an establishment here in Tokyo. And that's where it was. But the story, of course, doesn't end there. And this spot remains a place where tension bubbles to the surface. In the middle of the 19th century, the shogunate is under pressure. The Americans have arrived. They've signed treaties which give them access to Japanese markets. So this is the site where the prime minister of the day, Inaosuke, who signed that treaty, is assassinated. That history of confrontation and violence continues to surface today. States and the nations which they've spawned in modern times are notoriously born through violence. They monopolize this. They try to make the memory of their own violent origins disappear. But they're also threatened by the economies that they enable when peace finally breaks out. We'll see this in the third and final episode of this walk, which will begin in that soggy Hibiya Park on the other side of the Justice Block. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>